but we'll give it a shot. Uh, so yeah, so so like we talked about, I think that it's just as important, if not more important, to kind of talk about you know different types of people, especially minorities, people like yourself, um, that are they're doing a lot of great work from a from a corporate perspective, especially from a nonprofit perspective in the community. I think that's how you really improve our communities and also get more people involved. So you know, I, I felt like you'd be the kind of perfect one of the perfect people to talk to and kind of get a better understanding and help people understand like the type of work you do um, and, and kind of learn a little more about you in the process and, um, you know, test out some cool marketing stuff or, you know, for people like yourself. Sure, cool. Thank you. I appreciate the uh, opportunity and um, that you see some validity in my work for what you're doing. <laughs> So I know you wear a lot of different hats and kind of the thing that we first started, we're, we're not wrong first, but the thing we're trying to talk about is kind of like your, I guess, rebrands or, um, you know, branding identity and which kind of was going to talk, talk, take me to a really good point. But I kind of guess, like, talk about some of the work that, that you're doing um, first with, with your own company and then we'll talk about some of the work that you're doing with the village. Yeah, so I... Um... I'm really fortunate that, uh, you know, all the things that I'm doing right now are things that I was doing um, for free, either for free or for very little money in my 20s. There are areas of passion for me, and um, I'm a very passionate person. And I um, was very adamant on doing what I loved and doing what I cared about to make money, um, which meant a lot of sacrifice up front. And sometimes trying to make sense of what was happening. I mean, like, can I really care about all these issues and people and communities, and the well-being of the planet, and actually make income? Uh, excuse me, sustainable income. And um, you know, luckily that that all worked out for me. So, in my own world and life slash company, um, I really spend my time working with organizations and institutions be they for-profit or not-for-profit, that really want to tackle some of the largest questions about our humanity as it relates to how those institutions and organizations show up in the world and how they show up um, to solve problems, how they show up on behalf of their own workforce that's employed to help them solve problems in a particular way in their vein of their mission or um, you know their vision. And, you know, simply put, it's like people want really human outputs. Um, they want creativity. They want innovation. They want um, ingenuity. They want healthy teams and people to be able to manage conflict and resolve conflict. And I don't find that they always have the inputs that produce those kinds of outputs because human beings are not line items in a budget. Um, and they're not, you know, data points. And unfortunately, capitalism has had us reduce people to those spaces. So I work with teams to get into the nitty gritty around those things, be it, you know, what we call DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, or race, equity, and inclusion, REI, um, organizational dynamics, organizational culture, um, conflict res, you know, there's a lot of terminology that gets used in that space of how I describe the work. But we get at all those things, and we do a lot of—I do a lot of redesigning with folks, like redesigning of certain operations of the systems, or introducing new tools, or designing new tools and processes and practices with 
teams and people so that they are able to address the needs and address the processes that um, are impeding or that are jacking up the kind of outcomes and outputs that they want. Um, I could give you more tangible examples of what that work looks like if you want it, but that's a quick yeah, description. You, yeah, the one thing that, that really piqued my interest was we talked about the, the whole trust factor. And I think that's the one thing that that's, I think is really going back to the capitalism that's really lacking. It's like, you don't, you know, you, people like us are always going to work hard because we're passionate and we care and we see the potential in it. But it's like, if you don't feel like your company trusts you, you know, you, you, you're not. There's, you know, you and I are, are the minority in more ways than one. I try to tell people. <laughs> yeah, trust is an interesting factor, right? So speaking about innovation, um, you can't, and creativity, you can't have those two things without some trust, right? Like those are emergent properties and they're not going to emerge if teams don't trust each other. So not even just the, do I, does the company trust me, but also do I trust the company, right? Do I trust that my manager has my best interests at heart? Do I trust that my colleagues in my team or my department have my best interests at heart? Can they trust that I have their best interests at heart? Can we trust that, you know, we have a shared uh, cognitive frame around this vision and a shared sense of value around this vision and this mission and that we're all working towards that? Or are people trying to get ahead so hard and undercut each other because everybody's trying to get to that next promotion and try to find upward mobility? Um, how safe am I in my identity at work, right? As a black man, as a black cis man at that, but also being a black cis queer man, right? And being very clear about that um, in my identity, like how, but also being, you know, to speak to some of these complexities, um, I had some friends of mine, you know, expose me to the fact in college that like I'm straight passing, right? That I could, like if people don't, not that I'm the most masculine man on the planet, but and not that gay means femme, but just in how people are taught to view and have been socialized to view individuals, if you are a little bit of feminine or do are into things that are that seem feminine, people automatically assume gay or non-straight. And so there are spaces where friends of mine who are more feminine and who can't, you know, hide their, you know, hide people's perception or hide aspects of themselves that, you know, get people's perceptions moving towards a certain way of, you know, thinking about their sexuality, like. I, they don't have that option and I did. And so even the idea of being straight passing was new for me and thinking about privilege and thinking about um, positionality, right? And like how you maneuver in spaces and places or how you're able to. But internally, I still have to deal with my own struggle with that and wondering like how safe is my identity in these spaces and places? Is it okay for me to show up as my fullest self will I be accepted as my fullest self? So all those things that play on the inside of a person is definitely impacting their performance. I read a lot on uh, power and performance and things like stereotype threat. I mean, there's a lot of interesting research around people's perception of their own power, people's perception of um, what of other people around them and how they might be responding to an identity point that you have and the whole night, how all of that is affecting your cognitive skills, your ability to uh, even imagine and predict your way through certain situations, um, how it affects skill recall, skills you already have in a given moment that you're trying to call up or skill development, how it can disrupt that. So there are a lot of things that, um, 
we take for granted as human beings, but when we start to get into the nitty gritty of, again, teams, performance, outputs, productivity, et cetera, these things matter a lot. And it's stuff that the corporate world has never had to think about. Um, and I always, you know, blast people with this info and then go, so when you see underperformance, you probably don't know exactly what you're looking at. And you need to do some inquiry or practice some compassionate inquiry to figure, get a little more data and figure out like what's really happening here. Yeah. Yeah. Like you, you touched on something. I had a nice outline that I sent you that I, that I already feel like we're, it's getting hijacked, but we were talking about like mentorship and, and it's funny, I was talking to the fiance before and just kind of like going back to talk about the trust and, and just the environments we create and just skill development and all these things. And you, you know, it's, it's not necessarily that you have poor performing employees or people, it's that you have a, a poor management or poor minimal management, especially. And for me, um, I had some very good mentors earlier in my career. In the last five years, I have had no mentors. Um, I've had mentors, obviously, but outside of my job. And I've really learned, um, not even just as a, as a black man, but just as a, as a person, how difficult um, life can be without a mentor. And one of my mentors, who's also my uncle we talked about, he always says that you, you've had a lot of mentors, but you also have, have just had advisors or colleagues because a, a good mentor will pull you up, take you under their wing, make sure they'll help you push ideas through. And so I, I guess the, the process I've been learning about now is just really how important mentors are. And then also I think, you know, we'll probably go into some real spiritual stuff, but just spirituality wise, probably this experience was me learning that it's time for me to take that next step and that how, you know, I need to start mentoring other people and stop looking and, and asking for permission to do stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it goes back to that trust. It goes back to creating an environment where you can be your full self, regardless, regardless of all of those other factors, but just feeling like in, in any one sense of that word, like you can go to your job and talk about improvements. Um, and I guess, you know, like completely hijack this, you know, we'll talk about, you know, as, as black men, we'll talk about it now, you know, you reposted a really good piece, um, you know, um, on NPR, just about struggles as black men that we go through just in <clears throat> life-threatening situations, you know, to be non-threatening. But that doesn't include all the situations that are non-life-threatening you know, the ways and techniques and, and, you know, especially with us both being, you know, relatively tall, you know, like the one thing I had to learn is like being a tall, articulate, well-spoken black man, like that's already intimidating. Oh, gosh. So I go to meetings and interviews and just try to like downplay my skills and be very non-threatening. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you want to talk a little bit about that and kind of, I guess, where the next stage of where you're going in terms of kind of maybe the rebrand of your company and, and how yeah, sure. you're getting some of those, some of those um, spaces? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I hit that first part around just appearing non-threatening, right? Like I also have a whole bunch of passion too. So like you get me in the right conversation, I'm riled up, right? And that's, <laughs> and it's nothing to do with anyone and I'm not mad. I'm just excited about what's happening right? and I care about the subject matter so much. Um, and I know, and right to your point about being like articulate and know, like, and I know a lot about the things that I care about. I've spent more than a decade in study and connected to people who are smarter than me in those areas and older than me. And I've worked the, those 
systems on top of doing research in those areas and all kinds of shit. So, um, so I'm also very confident in certain aspects of my um, intellectual, you know, acumen and the things that I'm bringing to the table and the work. Um, there are other areas where I'm not, but you know, where my confidence meets my passion, meets the things I naturally like, meets my height, meets my blackness, meets my long hair, meets my age, right? It's just a lot. <laughs> and people, yeah, I had to, I spent a lot of time trying to mold myself and then had to spend time being like, yeah, there is such a thing as like, shaping to your environment but there's also another space where you will shape the environment to you and i started that thinking more and like all right you it's just gotta you gotta balance this out you can't shape yourself so much that you lose yourself because like there's a magic to you right there's a special magic to who you are and when you find those right ingredients the job's not to water that down the job's to figure out how to encourage that to grow and to mature with you over time. And that's what I think I've been learning and figuring out. And to the point around this business, you know, that is, this business is the evolution of that. It is the culmination of years of work, of years of reading and, and formal researching and being a part of some formal research projects and learning and maneuvering and understanding systems and just doing and, and thinking and reflecting and developing my spirituality over that whole time as well. And like, so the business is the outgrowth of all that. It's the fact that I can no longer contain all that I have cultivated in just a person and what a person is capable of carrying out. There's more demand for me than I can meet, which I'm hyper aware of is a gift and it is a blessing because everybody doesn't have that on their side. And it took, um, I got into a fellowship program. It was an entrepreneurial fellowship program. Yeah, both entrepreneurial, a bit academic, but more on the entrepreneurial side. Fellowship program at Drexel University. They have a center called the Lindy Institute for Urban Innovation. And I was one of three inaugural urban innovation fellows. It was me, an ER doctor and researcher, and uh, um, a guy who was finishing up his PhD in, I want to say, community economic development and urban sociology somewhere in there, but also was the executive director of a community development corporation in West Philly. And so the three of us had these three projects focused on major, like almost lifelong issues that the city has to figure out, right? These urban wicked problems, right? Um, and just for anyone that might listen to this, a wicked problem is like, is a huge problem that's just intractable and would take decades upon decades and lots of money and resources and time to solve that problem or move that problem. And in urban planning, they call those wicked problems. And so the problem that I chose was workforce development and the work of the future, right? The future of work, because this was a huge issue, particularly for black and brown communities where automation was going to hit the hardest in uh, projections from places, very corporate spaces like McKinsey, right? Like reports were coming out about how problematic this was and how much attention had not been paid on this, uh, in this issue. Um, and I had been working around this space of workforce development slash future of work from the lens of training up employers around organizational cultural change, training them in race equity and inclusion, training, training them in theories around belongingness, 
helping them understand the humanity of their employees, like I call it the human sciences, right? Understanding that in the, the, the human index of experience, you've got, you know, traumas and chronic stressors and you have, um, you know, uh, just the, the suffering, right? Some of the worst things that life has to offer at one end of the spectrum. And then you've got, you know, thriving and human flourishing and you know really healthy life outcomes at the other end of the spectrum and then there's this arc in between right because it is a it is spectral it's not a polar opposite your life is here or here it's somewhere in the middle for many of us right and the goal is to be moving towards thriving flourishing and healthy outcomes um, as much as possible and so scaling from one side of the spectrum to the other includes activities like healing growth, recovery, um, because life is full of trauma and chronic stress and stressors and things that are unplanned. And one of the most brilliant statements I ever heard at a conference, I wish I could remember this woman's name, I cannot, but I, I will honor that it was a woman who said, you know, it's our job as human beings to schedule joy and celebration because trauma and grief schedule itself. You don't have to do anything. You just gotta be alive and trauma is guaranteed to occur in your life. Grief is guaranteed to be a part of the human experience. You have to cultivate joy. You have to celebrate. You have to make time for, you know, positive, meaningful experiences in your life. And that really stuck with me and hit me like a ton of bricks. And so, again, my, the human sciences piece and how I look at the work, again, thinking about that spectrum, I started applying that to employers and to workspaces because everybody's trying to train black and brown people with soft skills. You know, in the academic literature, we call soft skills behavioral skills, which I really appreciate. We call hard skills technical skills. And so everyone's trying to train black and brown folks and poor folks to have soft skills and show up to work on time, et cetera. But in a state like Pennsylvania, where we're a commonwealth, uh, it's where it's at will employment, you know, employers can get away with saying, oh, that person was not a good cultural fit and that's grounds for termination, right? That's code language because what I hear when someone's not a good cultural fit is I don't look like your grandson. I don't look like a person you would go get a beer with on the weekend and just chat it up about the game. I don't look, I don't look like or feel like your frat brother, right? And that is problemsome to me and troublesome because how do I know it's really the soft skills or is it the fact that we've got empathy and psychological gaps and social gaps, right, in our identities and in our experiences of this society that are so huge, it's almost insurmountable for people without support, training, et cetera. So there's a skill set that employees, potential employees might need, but there is definitely a skill set and uh, at, the, at both the organizational level and the individual level that employers and those in power in the workforce development sector and in hiring and HR, et cetera, operations at these companies, there, is, there are skill sets and values and dispositions that they need as well to take care of the humanity of their current employees, but also to create a space that is actually receptive for, in a healthy way, uh, receptive for the people that are getting trained on the opposite side, right? I just found it was all off balance. 
anyway, all that being said, this rebrand, uh, hopefully I'm speaking with the lawyers tomorrow around the trademark for this new name and some new identity around it. I'm excited about the way that's going. Hopefully this pans out and we don't have to go back to the drawing board uh, because of trademark issues. But yeah, I'll have, we'll have a new website up soon and some projects. There's some projects that are um, coming together. I can talk about some of those at a point. I don't know, you let me know. Yeah. <laughs> now, you want me to talk about it now, later? Well, let's, let's not hijack everything. Okay. Let's try to, try to, but no, um, I, I guess that's, well, that's actually kind of a, a perfect segue into like, um, kind of the, 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 the for-profit and the not-for-profit and mm -hmm. kind of the work you're doing with the village. And, and I think you, you said something to me that was very illuminating, just like University of Penn is a, a not-for-profit company. And I had never yeah. looked at it that way. And, you know, I, and you, you were saying a lot about how, you know, companies will, will try to train and, and try to make black people, brown people, minorities, poor people, uh, more of cultural fits, help them with the soft skills. But I think it also goes back to the work that, like, that you're doing and that we talked about in the community. Um, with the village and and just so love to talk about a little more about the work that you're doing with the village and just how that fits into you know some of the work that you're doing on the, on the for-profit side and just how that kind of can coexist I think that's also important people to know just that you know you can have um, a non-profit entity a not-for-profit entity and a for-profit entity and they can coexist and work very well together and it's and I think it's it's probably a space that we should see a little bit, a lot more people involved in um, doing obviously the for-profit work, you know, because they're, you know, there's places that want to pay um, and, and they can afford to pay. Um, and then, and then, you know, helping them or doing the work that needs to be done in the community as well. Yeah. So, you know, flipping hats again, I am extremely fortunate. So I have full-time work at the village of arts and humanities and arts, uh, and culture nonprofit in North Philadelphia that um, does work also in community economic development. And so there I'm their director of learning. So I run all of our learning programs for young people nine to 26 years of age. Um, our programs for middle high school and then that post high school crew are all in a space of pre-appointment. So that means young people are getting stipends and getting paid and they are in a work-like situation although we don't call it full out employment because it's technically not full employment, um, but it is built to train young people on how to start engaging the world of work in a way that does not disempower them and uh, in a way that does not center on power dynamics that um, leave them with very little agency. Um, and so we are actively always, always, always <laughs> trying to make sure that we are centering the experience of these young people within, you know, their the center of their locus of control. So if you think about like a circle, you've got the inside of this circle. If you put a dot inside that circle, you've got the inside of the circle around the dot, which is all the stuff that somebody can control. And then you've got everything outside that circle that you cannot control. Our goal is to always have our education and pre-employment programs working with young people where they're positioned 
to sync and navigate problem solving and their inquiry process from that point of the dot in the circle. I want you to always be thoughtful about like, what is it that I can control in these situations? It just gives you a very different frame of reference um, and how you begin to start seeing the paradigm of work and the opportunities for you to build skills and build relationships and navigate spaces where you might not know anything, but you can get something done and you can learn. Um, all that being said, it, the program is based in making, both digitally and in an analog sense in both um, the creative arts and media world, but also the tech world a bit, and then also in like an analog, like product making world and urban agriculture. So we offer classes and courses in music production and songwriting, fashion design and merchandising, uh, photography, clay and ceramics, graphic design, event design and promotion. We've got a hip hop dance class, we've got, what else do we have? I feel like I'm messing up. Anyway, we've had podcasting in the past and GIS uh, mapping and sound mapping courses. We've done web design. Um, I mean, we've been able to do comic book making. We've been able to do a lot of things um, and teach young people through client-centered work how to both create projects, but then also how to deliver real-world solutions, even if it's just, again, for a client that might have a small thing they're working on, which is fine, uh, or a client like the Public Health Department of Philadelphia, which has a huge project. Where they're trying to address gun violence across the city of Philadelphia, right? So the projects can range in scale, but most classes, if not all, are connected to client work that goes out into the real world. So young people have real stuff on the line, which is why that whole idea of like the center of your locus of control matters. Especially at so a young much. age. Cause I mean, yeah. I know adults struggle with that. I mean, the coronavirus has completely shown people <laughs> like way up in arms about things they have no control over. Yeah. Um, and, it's, and it's hard. It's so hard to, to sit in that space and try to see a future for yourself when you feel like everything is just out of your control. Um, so, you know, hats off to everyone navigating that space right now because it's hard. So that's, that's a bit of like why, the, the why and the how behind the village. Um, we run year round. If you think about the way school runs, you know, you've got fall, winter, spring semesters and a summer semester. We run pretty um, adjacent to that schedule. Excuse me. Um, yeah, so that's a huge chunk of my job there. The other part of my job there is like managing different special projects and things that pop up um, that are connected to areas of concern, both for my role at the village and then those things I was describing earlier that are part of my own for-profit business and my work as a fellow and budding researcher practitioner at the Lindy Institute for Urban Innovation. And so one thing that has happened in talking about this idea of like for-profit and not-for-profit sectors you know, combining or partnering to accomplish something bigger than the two could do alone, um, I have been able, my business has been able to partner with my employer to explore something that is really exciting to both of us um, with the support of a funder, um, the Neubauer Foundation. So to make a long story short, um, the Newbar Foundation was interested in supporting some of my work and research um, 
because again, my research stuff is practice-based too. So it looks at this idea of praxis, right? And again, focused on workforce development and the work of the future, right? And so separately from that work that I was doing, the village had initiated, my boss had come up with this project called the 100 Families Initiative. And it was centered around a question she um, came up with, which was how do we work with 100 families to own 100 homes, sustain with 100 jobs for 100 years? And so it's audacious and ambitious enough to be scary, which I think all good goals should be, but it's modular enough that you could break it down into sections, right? 100 families, 100 homes, 100 jobs, 100 years, right? And even the 100 years piece kind of trickles through everything. Um, and then you could take each one of those four subdivided areas and break them down into smaller areas. So if you, if the idea is how do you seed 100 jobs into this neighborhood, right? And not saying that the jobs have to be literally in the neighborhood, but that there are 100 jobs available to people in this neighborhood, even if they have to travel outside the neighborhood. Well, to get to 100 jobs, you could think about 10 jobs from 10 employers, right? Like as a simple way to start breaking this down. And then it's like, okay, but that might even be too big. What if we just start with eight employers and one job, right? And just start figuring out what does this relationship look like, et cetera. I started doing some early thinking on that and just based again on my work outside of the village. And it just made sense for us to partner because my business was growing, is still growing. Um, and like I said, I'm very fortunate to have a lot of interest in the kind of work that I do and my approaches to the work, the kind of vision that I'm bringing to the work. Um, and the relationships in the world that I can bring to that space too. Uh, you know, I have a lot of uh, appreciation for what people see in terms of the value there. Um, but this is the conundrum or the like issue, the problem of capitalism. Those relationships, the skill sets and the things that are growing there are actually a thing that the village needs. What sense does it make for me to leave the village to go grow my business and the village needs a thing that I can offer? Um, and so it's like, how do we make sense of that, right? And so even the role I have as director of learning, that's a newer role based on this collaboration and like us reimagining how to make uh, this relationship really symbiotic. Um, but this is the problem with capitalism is often in the nonprofit space, the people who can really help to bring things together and blah, 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 we, we would leave, yeah. right? We would go to corporate. I, so my entire career, I've literally had people in my 20s when I was working at family homeless shelters in the whole nine and still teaching art and whatever, they would be like, bro, uh, you need to put on a suit, go get you an advanced degree, just get an MBA and go make you six figures. You People would eat you up in that world. And I was like, ah, that's not what I want to do, right? But they get to a point where I was like, well, wait a minute, maybe they've got a point, right? Maybe I'm not hearing, they're seeing me in a particular light and, and projecting me into paradigms and imaginative trajectories through their world, but maybe they're not wrong about certain things. Like maybe there is something in business that I could be doing. Maybe there are skill sets that I have that I'm not able to apply in this world of nonprofit service delivery that I was in previously, right? So moving to the village six years ago was a great move for me, right? Versus being in social services, which is not a space that's very imaginative. It's not extremely entrepreneurial, uh, or, you know, there's a term called intrapreneurship. Like they're, they're, those ideas just don't, that's not that sector, right? And so I think what people were trying to communicate to me was like, 
if you stay here as your methodology of solving these problems, you're not probably going to be as happy and as successful and as fulfilled as you could be. And part of that success they were pointing out is like the impact too, not just the money, but like you can make better impact if you took the same stuff and moved to a different sector. And once I finally got that, I, I'm glad to say I did it because they were right. Um, and so Newbauer coming in to support this budding relationship between my business and the village and work and us working out these inner mechanisms, you know, has made it so that now we can focus on working with stakeholders that care about the work of the future or the future of work and workforce development, uh, you know, ideas and policies and ways of uh, developing a workforce that gets you towards family sustaining incomes that gets you towards uh you know healthy uh, trajectories and outcomes for neighborhoods the whole nine we can focus on all that now and an interesting way that doesn't you know like rip me away from the village or that doesn't um you know have the village trying to figure out how to solve for that with somebody else while I'm working there with the learning programs, you know what I mean? And like not able to bring resources that I have to build or trying to do that and do 20 other jobs and trying to figure out like, how do we make this work? You know, the funder was really helpful in giving us some room to explore that and focus in and develop a pilot. So we'll be working with a, again, a series of stakeholders of uh, varying kinds of employers um, people hiring immediately, people hiring over the next six to 18 months, um, as we are understanding more about COVID-19. Um, we will be working with a group of funders, including some impact investors and traditional philanthropy um, and people who have capital who care about this issue and these issues as it relates to the future of our region um, and then also uh, neighbors right so village neighbors i call them but people who are from the neighborhood or people who are in other neighborhoods that are representative of the demographic that we service so doing some mirror learning around these issues of belongingness and essential navigational skills and culture and etc doing mirror learning and all those four groups and then doing some training around courageous conversations to then bring people together to have some dialogue where we're learning as the people holding this container. And then we're also, you know, trying some things out with folks to try to iterate, like what are the tools that will help us design and define what true belongingness looks like at a systems level and how does that begin to permeate the ways that we even think about pipelining to life and family sustaining wages and the jobs that have them how do we think about that in terms of how these companies that have those wages and have those jobs how do we think about that in terms of how they hire and recruit and retain how do we think about it as they're iterating themselves into a future that used to be you know, 40 years away, that's now right here, right? Automation and these projections around like loss of jobs, et cetera. COVID-19 sped all that up in seven weeks. Yeah. So I know it was a very long answer, but. No, that was perfect. That was perfect. The, the cool thing about this is I, it's, it's, and this is kind of a perfect segue into, into what the next thing, you know, about the work that we've been talking about with the Rich Quick Workshop. And, and for me, you know, like a lot of things you said can make complete sense. It's about, you know, not, not splitting yourself 
in two almost, so to speak, because I think that's what we, we were both doing or, or not understanding where your, your impact is most needed and where your skills are best needed. So for me, I was coming from the other perspective. I was coming from the corporate America environment, as we talked about in Word, and just seeing where my impact was having more. But at the same time, like, you know, how is that going to translate into something? You know, I looked at it. The struggle for me was as, a, as an engineer, um, you know, making the money I make, how can I do the work in the community, the work that has that impact that I care about now, um, you know, that, that's going to change, change the world and make the world a better place and still make a sustainable living. And it was kind of through, through our discussions and through the work that Rich and I were working on and through the nonprofit and, and the DEI work um, that, that you can see that, that kind of symbiotic relationship start taking hold. And then as, as we talked, you know, bringing that, the, you know, uh, kind of a marriage of those two communities where you can, you can, you know, the work in the community can benefit people. And, and that's kind of the work that I've been doing. It's, it's definitely an uphill battle and helping people understand that like you can do this work in the community and it, it helps you in your career path because you're going to have these issues in terms of vis visibility, going back to what we talked about initially, visibility, um, plateauing from a technical perspective or your hard skills, you have to build out these soft skills or, or at least understand where you might have the most impact. So I think, you know, it, it makes the most sense at this point to talk to, you know, our, our good friend who's, who's, who's allowed, even allowed us to having, allowed us to even have this conversation. Unfortunately, he's not here to have it with us, but, um, mm -hmm. but you know, Rich Quick, who, who did a lot of work at the village, um, taught a class, um, yeah. I was his on again, off again. A couple of classes. <laughs> oh, he taught a couple of classes. Yeah, yeah. That guy was mostly talented. So he was yeah, teaching yeah. visual art. He was teaching music. Like Rich, is, Rich was the man. Yeah, and, and I think even going back to him, you know, like I, I'm, I almost wish that, you know, I would have understood some of the stuff that I understand now about, you know, where do you have your most impact? You know, like it's funny because I, like I was talking about, I've taken one of the kids, he was mentoring and taking him under, his, under my wing. And you know they both worked at Home Depot, and it's like you have these visual art skills. You, 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 you're an amazing artist. You know, I think it's about where do you have the most impact? Yeah, you have the most impact in doing the work in the community. But you know, I see a lot of people, like I'm sure you do, that they talk about how much they, you know, they're they're not doing what they're passionate about. But I think it's about finding the marriage of those two, and you know, doing what you love at your place of business. You know, like like you were saying, like you have these skill sets, you know, why would you, why would it make sense for the village to go look elsewhere when you can do this job and, and help bring in, them bring in new business and change the community. And I think that's kind of the path that I've been on trying to help with and bringing, um, trying to help you find that synergy between, you know, the work in the corporate space and in the not-for-profit space and how do you, you know, bring those resources and those skill sets and those and that technology um, to places like the village and to the community. So where you have these kids that have these wealth of options, not just like, oh, you know, I have to, I can only be an artist or, or an athlete. No, there's, there's any number of amazing jobs, like jobs that you and I both have, um, and helping them understand. And I mean, so I guess, you know, I, I, was, I was gonna ask you what was one of your, your favorite rich stories um, but, but yeah, just, you know, talk a little bit about that, um, about, about the workshop, um, the work that Rich was doing and kind of, I guess, where you, you hope to see that, that work kind of go. 
Yeah. Um, you know, just really quickly to speak to something you said, I think the the biggest challenge with trying to marry your passion and your work is that you have to be able, you have to have patience, tenacity, you got to be relentless, and you got to be able to oscillate and go back and forth between two different needs, the immediate needs, and then this like long-term um, vision around your, like your, who you want to be or what you want to be and what you want to do. And you got to be able in the now, in the moment you're in, be able to speak into and do things that build into both of those spaces. Cause you got to pay your rent, right? You got to eat, you got to sleep, you got to have a safe place to sleep, right? So you got to attend to your immediate needs or the long-term like visionary stuff that you dream about won't happen, but you also can't just pay attention to all the immediate needs for six straight years and not be building into that other space because six years goes by faster than people think, right? You and I are older now, right? When we were in our 20s, when we were 21, it felt like, my God, I'm never going to be 30. It's going to take forever. Well, now I'm turning 35 in like four, three and a half weeks. And I'm like, whoo, in retrospect, that actually did go pretty fast. <laughs> like, I didn't realize how fast it was going while it was happening. And I'm very grateful that what I was doing while trying to address my immediate needs was also doing the study, learning, meeting people. The Lord, the social capital piece is huge, right? Because that's how you really get jobs. You don't get jobs from a resume. You get jobs from your network. So like meeting people and making sure I'm meeting people across these sectors and meeting people in the spaces that I want to be in while I'm like, Doing both of those at the same time, right? There comes a point where it all starts colliding, but you gotta have the like tenacity to like keep doing both and keep getting stuff back, even if you're not always seeing the full results of that investment in the long-term thing right away. So I just wanted to put that out. How are we doing for time? Because there has a couple things that I was gonna wanna run by you that I think may <laughs> take up some time. So how are we doing on time? I probably need to go in like two minutes, but happy oh. to do a part two tomorrow or any other day rich what an amazing guy um but in terms of like a specific story you know rich was very dedicated to his students and no teacher is perfect right god knows i've screwed up so many times when i was teaching um and so like that's just the journey right you it's like being a doctor at a teaching hospital when you're first out of med school you're going to make mistakes. Like it's just embedded in the process. People expect it. The goal is just to minimize the cost of those mistakes, right? Because people's lives are on the line in that context. And in this context, people's emotional lives and their well-being are definitely partly on the line because we're, we're dealing with a population that's often gone through some severe stuff. Like it's not uncommon for us to get um, young people who have been shot in our program. We get feeds from or you know we are feed-in program or feeder program for none of the anti-violence programs in the city that are in hospitals they're hospital-based and specifically geared towards the highest risk which are young people who have been shot are at risk of being shot again or being shooters right um, and so often and sometimes they already have been shooters right they just got shot this time so we are a space where um that kind of stuff is colliding, right? And so there's so many needs uh, in one given space at one time. So we invest in training up our teachers 
um, on how to attend to the humanity of these young people dramatically so right and rich was just insatiably curious about all that stuff that speaks to his character right he was dedicated to the well-being of these young people and um rich quick workshops are literally built to live in honor of that work that dedication that passion that creativity and talent and genius that he brought to the village and to all the things that he did um, and we just want to honor our friend and keep that alive and use it as a way to reach more young people and use it as a way to speak to that kind of energy being the thing that we should be cultivating more of in young people and more of in other teachers and in like you're talking about these relationships between the corporate world and the not-for-profit world and communities you know it's just a really good example of what's possible and what's needed all at the same time. Yeah, I, th I think that's just something that, that you know, we, we owe to him. And I think it's, it's important work. And I think it's also, like going back to what I was saying, it's work that, um, you know, it, it does make you whole. Um, I mean, talk about having the impact, but also just from a creative perspective, it, it allows us, you know, as creatives in our own, in our own right, to be able to explore our own creativity um, and just, just have that sense of, of just, you know, being more well-rounded and, and doing some of the stuff that, you know, that we love and being able to help kids along that path and creatives in general. We'll, we'll definitely do a part two, but I think this exceeded all expectations. Oh, nice. Glad, 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 glad. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you a lot. Man, man, no problem. Well, all right, talk soon. I'll let you get to it and we'll catch up soon. All right, take care, bro. Bye, Mike.